This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 120 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the B Podcast Network. If you've ever thought about leaving the school systems, you may have wondered what options you have as far as jobs go. Maybe you feel burnt out, or maybe you just want to change, and you don't want to walk away from education completely. I understand this dilemma on a deep level, so that's why I invited Amy Davis to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast to talk about how she used her teaching background, and improv skills to find a fulfilling job outside the school systems. I thought Amy would be a great guest because of a number of reasons. One, she's had quite a unique job history, really pulling lots of different fields together. She is the senior director of the Learning Center at the Field Museum in Chicago. 
And so because she works at the museum, I knew they had some really great programs that give kids the opportunity to have engaging learning experiences as well as work experiences. So I wanted to hear about her career history as well as some of the programs at the museum. So Amy spent 10 years as a middle school social studies, reading and language arts teacher before leaving the classroom in 2013 to pursue a career in informal science education. At the Museum of Science and Industry, she developed a suite of inquiry-based floor programs and trained teams of facilitators to deliver daily science programming. She joined the Field Museum in 2015 as the volunteer and public Learning Experiences Administrator. In 2019, Amy became the Director of the Learning Center and in 2022, the Senior Director. In this role, she oversees six divisions in the Fields Learning Center, which includes the museum's offerings for teachers, students, families, community groups, teens, and everyday visitors. In this episode, we talk about how to find a job that aligns with your passion and skills outside the school systems. If you're wondering what's out there, if you want to change, or if you want to know how to use your skills that you've learned working in the schools for other job roles. We also talk about how learning improv can make you a better teacher, leader, and communicator, even if you're not into theater. And this is a really interesting part of the conversation, especially if you want to be better at networking and building relationships, but also if you want to help your students learn to read situations and communicate more effectively. And then finally, we wrap the conversation up by talking about how museums are leveraging you programs to enhance real-world, hands-on learning, and embracing the benefits of technology at the same time. One thing I wanted to mention before we get going is that this past year, I joined the B Podcast Network for Educators and Aspiring Leaders. This network has a ton of podcasts that are designed to inspire you to level up in your career as an educator, to help you more effectively serve students, and to lead a more fulfilling career. There are a ton of great podcasts on the network covering topics like school leadership, learning and development in the corporate setting, ed tech, entrepreneurship, and a ton of other things that are going to help you Think of innovative ways that you can use your skills to serve your clients. To learn more about the Bee Podcast Network, go to bepodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get to the interview with Amy Davis. Today I'm joined by Amy Davis, the Senior Director of the Learning Center at the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So we, in our pre-discussion, before we started recording, we kind of talked about two themes for this conversation. One, just the idea of career exploration for people who are in education or related roles and just some different career options, but also just other other ways that you can just build enrichment into your day since we're all so focused on digital things and with you working at a museum, which is, I feel like something people have kind of forgotten about in some ways. So I wanted to get into that as well. So I thought we could just start off by talking about just the career conversation. So can you share a little bit about your background as far as where you started in your career and just 
how you ended up where you are now. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I always wanted to be a teacher since I was a little kid. I uh, really never considered any other option for a career path. And so went to to uh, Illinois State, got my degree, became a teacher. My first job was teaching remedial reading. Uh, so I taught seventh and eighth graders. Um, it was a great position. I learned quite a bit. I had to build the curriculum from scratch because it was the first Title I class that, that they had at the school. And so there was there was no curriculum, no textbooks. Uh, seventh and eighth graders were in the same classroom. And after uh, five years of doing that, I feel like I got comfortable and was ready for the next challenge. And uh, the district had an open position for a language arts and social studies teacher. And so I moved out of uh, the remedial reading position into language arts and social studies where I was teaching the remedial students, but also the the honors students. And I did that for about five years and I really enjoyed teaching writing and teaching students to express themselves and decided probably three years into that position to take a writing class at Second City to challenge myself as a writer and hopefully find some some ways to help my students with brainstorming and more creative writing. And that class at Second City led to a year of classes at Second City, finishing the writing program there, uh, loved what I was doing, decided I wanted to to learn to direct. And so I began um, working with directors at Second City as an assistant director, which is uh, sometimes glorified grunt work, but you get to learn a lot. Yeah. And ultimately, you can't be at Second City for very long without learning to improvise. And so I started taking improv classes. And through all of these classes, I met people from all different careers. And particularly, I met some people who worked in museums. And for me, teaching was always the only option. I I loved education. I loved students. And all of a sudden, through talking with these folks, it became clear that I didn't have to be in a classroom to be a teacher. And that can sometimes be really challenging to be in a classroom, particularly a language arts teacher and social studies, because you've got piles and piles of papers to grade, yeah. curriculum to write. And I thought it sounded really interesting to um, think about uh, being an educator in a museum. And so I, I found a position at the Museum of Science and Industry that seemed like a good fit. They were looking for someone with an improv background and also an education background. And I, I applied and I got the job. And decided to take a chance. I left my position after 10 years in the school district. I had tenure. It was a huge decision, but it felt like the right one at the time. And a few months into the position at the Museum of Science and Industry, I realized I had made a terrible mistake. It was not what I wanted to be doing. And after about 11 months, I just couldn't do it anymore. And, And I left the Museum of Science and Industry and decided that I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. I liked working in a museum. I liked the idea of museum education. It just wasn't the right place for me at that time in my life. And so I decided to apply to jobs at other museums for a few months. And if nothing came about, then I would go back to teaching. And I landed at the Field Museum. Uh, My first position at the Field Museum was doing very similar work to what I was doing at the Museum of Science and Industry, working in public programming, which is uh, informal education. It's the uh, tours, the experiences that the everyday visitors and field trips have when they come to the museum. 
And that was the best move for me. I've been at the Field Museum now for eight years. I went from overseeing the teen programs, the public programs, um, the helped build what they call the Granger Science Hub, which is our education-based exhibition. Uh, and about three and a half years ago, uh, moved into the role of the director of the education department here. Wow. Yeah. So many interesting things that, I mean, and I've known you this whole time. I didn't realize the in, the thought processes that were going into all of these decisions. I remember going to one of your Second City shows and yeah. Um, I mean, when you were thinking about how to how to use your skills, you know, you made this decision to leave the schools and it sounds like it wasn't that you didn't like it. It just something else came up for you, right? It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I have to get out of here. Yeah, it was, it was a combination of things. Uh, I was in a district that was in the process of negotiating a, a new contract with our union and we were in the process of finding a new principal. It, it wasn't anything like major or, or game changing for me, but it was just enough to push me to look for something else and see what else mm. was out there. I yeah. love my students. I loved teaching. I still love being in front of a classroom when I have the opportunity. So it it wasn't the teaching. It was just felt like the right move at, at the right time. Yeah. So it was really just kind of a, just this, this thing that came across your, your mind and it was like, let's go with it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought about it for a long time. I, I probably thought about it for a full year before oh, I started wow. actually looking to see what was out there and what what positions might be a good fit. Um, the thing about teaching is it's a real it can become a really comfortable job because you do, especially in middle school, it was each hour was the same thing, each year was the same thing. And that is something really comforting and and a lot of people, that's that's the right thing for them. They they like that knowing what's next, being able to try something out, tweak it, and do it again. And and I do like that. But I also had this sort of aspiration to see what else I could do. And teaching is exhausting. It's still the hardest job I've ever had in in my life. And you're putting so much energy into the success of so many other people. Mm-hmm. And for me, it it just was time to think about myself and where were my passions and not to leave that behind. I continued to teach. I taught classes at Second City with students. Um, I tutored, uh, even substitute taught for a while uh, when I was between positions. So it wasn't that I hated it and I wanted to leave it or I wasn't invested in it. it. It's just exhausting. And I was ready for something new. Yeah. It's interesting. And I've talked about this a lot with people who are, you know, maybe they've been in a position for a while and they feel like, this is what I went to college for. This is what I thought I was going to do. And now I'm here and I liked it for a while, but I'm, I'm getting the itch or I, I like it, but, but there's things about it that I didn't expect. And this, it happens a lot with, so if I'm working with therapists, a lot of times it's, well, you go to school to be a therapist and this is what you do. And yes, you can move around to different settings and maybe you can be a supervisor or some people decide to be a school administrator, uh, but it, those positions are a lot harder to find. And so a lot of times, when an employer looks at you, they're like, here, let me slot you into this therapist position. And so you just get used to wearing that hat all the time. And it gets hard to think of yourself in any other context and think about how can I use my skills in any other way. And it's interesting because in the corporate environment or in other organizations, 
it's sometimes encouraged to move from one department to another and build up different skills and and change just so that you don't feel like you're doing the same thing over and over again. And and I just I think with the with the burnout, sometimes it is just workload where you just have a lot of students, you're always focused on other people and you're not focused on taking care of yourself. But I think that the the same thing over and over again and almost like a like a like a boredom to some extent can cause that feeling of just burnout, dissatisfaction, or, you know, is this what I want for the rest of my career? So if people are thinking about leaving the classroom, leaving that school setting, and I know we were talking before how you said a lot of people ask you about this because you have made this career transition and you found a lot of creative ways to use your skills. What kinds of things do they need to think about when they're figuring out what to do, what roles to go after, and just their options? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot to think about. There is a lot of really positive things when it comes to your day-to-day life and your personal life when it comes to teaching. So thinking about what do you really love about teaching and is that something you could carry forward? Also, where's your passion, right? If your passion is working with students, but you have a family at home, teaching might be the best place for you right now because you're not going to be able to work with students unless it's in the evenings and the weekends and the summers. So you can leave teaching and there's a whole host of jobs that you can do working with students, but it means that you're going to have to shift to when the students are available. So that's one thing to think about. Another thing to think about, you know, is it that you really love learning and curriculum and research Then maybe working for like a textbook company? Um, Not to say that you can't work with students during the day. I have um, people in my department who are field trip educators and they teach field trip classes. And so they are right in the middle of the school day teaching, but they're not developing relationships with students. Their relationship with students is 30 minutes to an hour, and they probably never see those students again. And so if the relationship and seeing that growth in your students is important to you, then teaching is probably a better pathway for you. If it's just like, I just want to do the fun stuff with them and and then have them walk away. Museum education is definitely a place that 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 can happen. And it's not just museums. Think about where you take your students on field trips and those educate. There's somebody at each of those institutions that's writing the curriculum, planning the field trips, teaching those field trips. Those are all jobs that teachers could apply to very easily and tend to be people with teaching experience that get hired into those positions. So there's a lot of opportunity um, outside of the classroom for people with an education background. It's just sort of deciding what do you like about education? What brings you joy and, and value? And what are the things that you don't like about being an educator? And you kind of have to weigh those pros and cons to figure out what's what's the next best step forward. And another thing is, I, th- I think this is really important, is what is your passion? And is outside of teaching, what is your passion? Because sometimes when you combine those two pieces together, that's where you find your next best step. Do you love teaching, but you also you know, love a sport like tennis, like maybe you want to teach tennis. And so for me, it was, I loved improv and I loved educating. And now I teach my next position, at least after leaving teaching was teaching teens and and adults, the tenets of improv as a means to educate the public on science um, in museums. Yeah. That's so interesting because I think, and and this is just because I've done 
some different things. And, you know, I'm always considering different directions as well. Sometimes when you even talk to other people about it, they're like, well, you're making, you're leaving, you're making a, a shift. And it's like, it, yeah, it's a shift. But when you, when you're a teacher, you can take that to all these other contexts or, and I would say, you know, I include therapists in there as well, because there, there's a, you know, a component of that in a lot of these things as well. But, but yeah, where it's, there are these parallels and these overlaps. So in that position, they wanted, it, it was teaching and improv. Like how did that, how did those two things come together for that position that you had initially? Yeah. So it's, it's this idea that when you're working in a museum, anybody can walk in the door. Right. And so yeah. you have to be able to read their body energy, which is a, something that you, um, or you're, you learn in improv, you want to match their energy. You want to listen to what they're saying and respond to that. And that's what makes for a really good conversation. It makes for a good interaction in the museum. And so um, it really just makes you a good communicator in general. And so when you think about improvisation and you go to an improv show, what's so impressive is that somebody walks out on the stage and they say something and they create this scene from nothing that everybody is now responding to. But yeah. if somebody walks out on the stage and they say, oh, this is the the biggest target I've ever been in. And the next person didn't listen to that. And they walk out and say, I think I'm going to make a campfire right here. Well, now they've ruined the whole scene for everybody. And that's like a really obvious example. But if you say a table's right here and somebody walks through that table, now the audience, it's broken that scene for everybody. And so you yeah. have to train yourself to be a really, really good listener to be a successful improviser. And then you're responding to what everybody is saying. So if you take that tenet and you apply it to an educator in a museum and a visitor walks in, you want to listen to where is that person from? What is the purpose of their visit? What are they excited about? And respond to that. And it might not be the thing that you're excited about. Generally, volunteers and educators and museums go there because there's, they, you know, field museum, they love dinosaurs. They want to talk to people about dinosaurs because that's mm -hmm. their passion. Yeah. It's totally understandable. But if somebody else comes, somebody comes in the door and their interest is not dinosaurs, don't go at them with a whole speech about dinosaurs and why this place is so cool because you're not going to win them over. Ask them why they're there. What are they interested in? And really listen to them and then respond to that. And energy matching is another thing that's really important because we've all had that person that's just a little too much that approaches us in a store or something. And it's like, I don't want to, Yeah, I I'm good, just leave me alone. Yeah. I don't want to engage. Or that person that matches your energy and can like, once you get that energy match, you can increase the excitement. When you talk to someone who's really excited about something, but they don't scare you with, in that first interaction, then you start to get excited too. Um, yeah. Similarly, if someone's really upset about something and you agree that they're upset and you start to like take that energy down with them, same effect. And so these are things that if you take those same principles and you apply them to interactions with visitors, you get more successful interactions. Now take that and combine it with experience as a teacher, understanding curriculum and understanding learning, which is pretty much my background together, which made me, uh, an ideal candidate, I suppose, for the position I had, which was building from scratch a what we call the Discovery Squad. And it's a um, facilitation based a volunteer program, but they have no scripts. They 
basically learn basic facts about some things and it their entire interactions are improvised based on what the visitors needs are. Wow. I can think of so many useful things <laughs> about what you just said with all those skills because I I talk a lot about executive functioning and so a lot of times in the school setting you think about well it's organizing your papers and getting your homework turned in on time but then there's the social aspect which is reading the room and perspective taking which is just all of what you just described and so I can think of you know if you have somebody who like a student who goes up to people and is is that person that doesn't know how to match the energy or they only want to talk about dinosaurs because I know that's a common thing where I feel like that's a common area of interest where people are super interested in dinosaurs and you know when you have the field museum and then there's the big dinosaur when you walk in where you might make that assumption that people are there to see that but there's so many other things that you can see at the field museum so yeah uh that is a I feel like that should be a required skill in school curriculums <laughs> and maybe yeah, teaching too. Absolutely. One of the things I did uh, when I was working for Second City was I did improv training for teachers where I would go into schools and do improv games, but with the dynamic of, you know, let, let's bring it to the school setting and then let's debrief and talk about how this is applicable with your students. And I mean, it, it's, how you say it, what energy do you have? We would do a game where it was everybody in the circle say something like, can I help you in a different way? And it's, you know, can I help you? Or can I help you? And then everybody had to say like, do they really mean what they say? Now let's apply that to our students. Okay. Like what if we did this activity with our students to make them more self-aware of it's not what you're saying, but how you're saying it, that's sending the message because that's something students miss a lot. They don't Mm -hmm. understand what they did wrong because they did what they were asked, but they don't understand how the way they say something with their body language is also sends a really impactful message. Yeah. Oh, well, and it's, there is so much focus on the content and the curriculum, which is of course really important. But then when you layer all this other, these other things on top of it, and you think about what skills do, I would say there's, there's a couple layers here where it's, what skills do teachers need in order to be able to connect with their students? And I obviously put all the people who are working in the schools under this umbrella as well. So the therapists, the administrators, and you know all the other people there. But then also, what do they need to be teaching their students so that when they go into the public or uh, work setting so that, that they know how to navigate that situation? So yeah, that's really interesting. And I know that um, improv to me that just sounds terrifying to be on the stage I know yeah when the teachers walk in the room half of them are really excited to be there and you're like oh you're my theater people and the other people (laughs) in the room are like I don't want to be here once you get going though and you know I think we associate improv with being on a stage and performing but really there's tons of games that we play and they're really just practicing good communication Um, Mm -hmm. and that's something that you have to practice to be good at it. And I have to remind myself daily when I'm in meetings with my staff, with my colleagues to be present and listen and respond to what they said. Because so often when we're listening 
to somebody talk, you know, it, I, a friend of mine gives the example, if a sentence is your arm and it starts at your shoulder and ends at your fingertips, most of us start thinking about our response at the elbow. Yeah. So like really listening to the end of what somebody's saying before you're responding is critical to them being heard and getting a response to what they're asking. And as a director, I'm, I meet with my managers weekly and my other, and my directors under me and, and they are coming to me for, um, advice. They're coming to me for approvals. They're coming to me to talk through the programs that they're doing. I might have my own thoughts on what they're saying, but I have to clear my brain and I have to listen to what they're saying uh, to be the best support system that I can be. Yeah. It's, it is hard. Like that is, I mean, I think most people at some, on some level have been in a meeting where they're like, let me think about what I need to say. And they're just really focused on that until they say it. And and it's, it's hard to like, you really have to put an effort towards doing that. And it does take energy. I wanted to take a quick break here and talk a little bit about the B podcast network and the morning motivation for educators podcast. So the B podcast network is a network of shows in the school leadership in career development space. I recently joined the network this past year, and it has been a great experience because there are a ton of shows on the network that are designed to help people in education to be better leaders, to be more effective in the way that they show up for their students and clients, as well as to think about how they can grow in their careers. So there are shows focused on leadership, teaching strategies, ed tech, learning and development, and overall personal development for people in education. And then I wanted to talk about the Morning Motivation for Educators podcast. So this is a collaborative podcast with a number of contributing voices. I have contributed several times for the show and plan on continuing to do that in the future. And this show just gives you a short five to 10 minute episode every day to get your day started right. So just a quick dose of inspiration to help you start your day on the right foot. I have done a couple episodes so far. I did one about planning your systems before your self-care, and I also did an episode on how to create a master plan to help you to plan for your long-term goals. So to check out the Morning Motivation for Educators show, you're going to want to go to morningmotivationedu.com and to check out the other shows on the Bee Podcast Network, you're going to want to go to bpodcastnetwork.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. I think the improv aspect of it and just going into a situation where it is a little bit more unstructured and unpredictable does help to kind of build that muscle. Because I know that when you get into a role where it is very predictable, you don't have to you don't have to improvise that much. And I mean, it, and it can be very, um, I don't know, anxiety provoking for some people, especially if you're not used to doing it. Yeah, you have to think of it like a Swiss army knife in your pocket, right? Improv gives you the tools to respond to the situation, but unless you take it out and pick the right tool, it's useless. And I've been in many conversations where I don't take that tool out. And I think to myself later, I really wasn't the best communicator in that situation. I, I wasn't actively listening. I, I was cutting them off. I wasn't responding. We've all done it because 
it's easier to not have to exercise those muscles than to really focus and do them. It's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Well, and the the thing is, is that like, if you tend to be someone who has kind of a predictable routine and you know, like you are interacting with the same people over and over again, you're in the same environment over and over again, you don't have to, you do kind of learn people's body language, how they respond to you. You don't have to work as hard to do that, which, you know, on some days that might be where you are, but, (laughs) and I think that's, you know, part of where people are thinking about to go back to the, the, you know, thinking of different creative ways you can use your skills, where there's probably a lot of people who maybe they are ready for a career transition, but just the idea of, you know, maybe because they've been in such a predictable routine for so long, the idea of having to flex that muscle again and use those skills is just very scary to them. (laughs) The change is terrifying. And we're all a little bit still traumatized from all the change we had to go through in the last, you know, three years. And, you know, I think that there's comfort and stability and comfort in knowing what's happening more so now than probably ever before. And so being in a career where you at least know exactly what you're teaching you know, exactly what you're doing versus being in a career where you're constantly having to respond to changes. It's exhausting. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the other side of that. And sometimes I think to myself how much easier things would be if I stayed in teaching, not because teaching is easy. And I can't say this enough. Teaching was still the hardest job I've ever done. It's exhausting and it's difficult but it is to some degree predictable. Mm-hmm. Like even if you know you've got a class that's challenging, you know they're going to be challenging every day and you kind of know what challenges each kid is going to bring to you each day and it makes it hard and it makes it tiring and it makes it frustrating, but you know what you're walking into every day. And to be in a position where you don't always know what you're walking into every day and it's really different But I will say that unless you're not working with people, those same frustrations will exist. If you're working with people, you're working with people, whether you're working with students or you're working with adults as a manager. Granted, stakes are different. Consequences are different. But people are people. And you have to remember that. And if you're working with people, you're going to be working with that whole person, whatever happened that morning to that person, whatever's going on in their personal lives. If that's really the thing you don't like about teaching, then you probably want to go into a position where you're not managing people at all. Yeah. I mean, because there are the other options where you you could be a curriculum developer, you can be a researcher. I've done a deep dive into the ed tech space to see what kinds of things, what kind of roles are there. There's instructional designers, there's learning and development, there's people who do research for these companies that are building curriculum, there's product and marketing and all these different things that you could potentially use your skills for. And I would say that most of them involve working with people to some extent, but the way that you do it is different. Sometimes you don't have direct reports and you're not managing people, you might be managing work. And I think managing work is different than managing people. So it's, it's different. I, that was interesting. What you said about the whole idea of, do you like, is it that you like the connection with the students? Is it that you like 
like for me, I like the strategy and the problem solving and the research. So I would be, you know, if I'm involved with curriculum, if I'm involved with the professional development and course design, I'm perfectly happy doing that. But I also don't want to be working every evening and weekend. So doing something like tutoring or private practice didn't make sense for me. But for a lot of people who are like, I want to still work with kids, but I want a little more freedom with the way that I do it. I don't want to have to follow the curriculum or, you know, whatever the district protocol is. Well, that might make more sense. But again, it's, I I think that it's, I don't know, it is hard to avoid working with people unless you're literally not working. I mean, that's kind of hard. It is, you know, and I, I have a department of, of people who I have some that, that just write curriculum and I have yeah. some who are out working with field trip groups and I have some who are managers managing teams of people. And so it's, it is different skill sets and it's, it is very different. And it, and I don't mean to downplay the idea that working with kids is very different than working with adults in a lot of ways, yeah. but there's a lot of similarities too. And uh, when I first stepped out of teaching, a lot of people would say, oh, it must be so much easier to manage adults over students. And it's different for <laughs> yeah. sure. It's yeah. very different. Um, probably easier in a lot of aspects, but definitely not completely different or completely easier. It's just different challenges because, you know, it it comes with being a people person. And I love working with people, uh, all people, kids, adults. So I, I never, that was never the issue for me is, um, was my students or the idea of, of working with being a manager is, is a very hard position, especially the first time you're in a manager position. I would say that was probably one of the most challenging times in my career uh, was the first time I was given adults to manage, uh, yeah. especially coming from being a teacher. It's really difficult to, to shift your mindset, to understand your role, to, be supportive, but not a micromanager. It there's there's different challenges with every position that I've had. Um, but if you if you're in teaching and you're like I can't can't do this anymore, I can't work with these students, then then go write curriculum or something where you're yeah. working with people a lot less. Yeah, well, that is interesting because I would say that from a from a, a neurological and brain development standpoint. You have to have a different role when you are working with people who don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex and have their full, you know, again, their their ability to problem solve. You do have to be a little more authoritative with them than you would be adults who, again, should be more dependent with those things as far as self-management and need a different level of guidance. I think that's why they have things like you know, adult learning theory and and all of those things, which when you really look at the components of things like adult learning theory, I look at those and I think, well, why aren't we teaching everybody like this? Like it's all mm-hmm. about application and not lecturing. And it's like, well, will we want to just lecture kids? That doesn't make sense either. But, but yeah, yeah. Um, just making those transitions. So before we wrap up, I, I know we wanted to talk about museums and just some different options as far as just because, um, Things are getting so digital, and I think that a lot of times when we're thinking about activities and trying to help help kids just have enriching learning experiences, we want to just think about, well, what are the options out there? And I know that I grew up going to the Field Museum and the Museum of Science and Industry, and 
you know, going to in-person things and finding information that way, as opposed to learning things on TikTok. So what are some things that you have as far as youth programs at the Field Museum and just things that people can take advantage of as far as just, you know, things that are offered for schools or just if people want to come to the museum? Yeah, absolutely. We have, um, for schools, we have field trips. We have what we call school partnerships, where we work with different schools in the city of Chicago, where we go in once a month and work with the teachers. Uh, We bring in specimens, objects from the field museum, and then we uh, have the students come for a field trip. At the end of that program, uh, we go into communities where we work with uh, different community organizations. uh, We work with parents, we work with young children. Um, For the person that wants to come to the museum, we have summer camps, we have sleepovers, overnights, we have family nights, uh, all things that are ticketed. And then there's just the every day the museum is open. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Granger Science Hub is an excellent space for everybody to get the opportunity to hold skulls, touch different animal furs, talk to an educator and ask questions. It's, It's really a behind the scenes space for the everyday visitor. We have volunteers on carts also with specimens and things for the everyday visitor. We um, have programs for high school students in cultural um, topics. We have STEM programs. We have digital media programs. We have a teen volunteer program. So there's a lot out there um, for the teen audience. And then throughout the year, we also just do workshops and different family programs as well. So there's there's lots and lots of ways to get involved uh, on a, just a one-off visit or in one of our education programs. Yeah, I think I would be really interested to learn about that that teen volunteer program because I know that sometimes kids, you need to get them out into sort of a work environment, but they might not be old enough to officially have a job. So what kinds of things do you do in that program? Yeah, that's an incredible program. So the teens, they come in and they do a training for two days. Um, A lot of it is that improv training that I mentioned before. And then they get a schedule where they rotate every hour to a different station with a different partner. And we have about, we have about a hundred teens, but we have about 20 of them per day. So they choose any days that they would like to come in during the summer. And in the mornings, they do some type of enrichment activity. Uh, It could be Uh, communication. It could be learning about resume writing. They do some type of enrichment in the morning. They do a full day of volunteering. And at the end of the day, they meet with a scientist or another museum professional, or do they go on a behind the scenes tour? So every teen in the program uh, gets 10 days that they select uh, where the, the wide variety of things that they offer. They have a morning enrichment and an afternoon enrichment with uh, volunteering in the middle. And the feedback from that program is incredible. Uh, Students come back and say they go went to speech class after having that after having to interact with hundreds of visitors all day long talking about science and different topics. How confident they are communicating, how confident they are speaking in front of crowds, um, how they write about it in their college essays. Um, it's really life changing for many of those teens to go through that program. Yeah, um, yeah, the, just the having to get out of your comfort zone and talk to so many different people, and I. So do you, you do the improv that you were talking about? So teach them if somebody comes in and they want to, you, you kind of have to feel it out and see what they're interested in and use those skills there that we were talking about earlier. Yep, exactly. 
Yeah. Oh, that would be, I can think of so many kids that that would be so important for just because um, obviously I, I could just see so many kids being like, I want to go volunteer at the museum because I really like this one thing. And, and that's right. great. They could probably go and learn a lot about that thing as well. And, you know, get, learn about their specific interests, but also have the opportunity to learn how to talk to other people who have different interests. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's a great program. Uh, and this kids that stick with it, they have the opportunity to go in to apply to a paid position when they're seniors and be a mentor for the program where they're helping to coach and uh, mentor the younger students in the program. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so since you are, have worked at a couple of museums, have you become a connoisseur of museums or was that always something that you were interested in? Um, I think like similar to when I watch sitcoms after going through all the writing classes at Second City, I like start dissecting them. I yeah. tend to do the same thing in museums. Um, so when I go to museums, I don't look at them probably the same same way as other visitors um, looking at like uh, recently I was in London and we went to the British Museum and we were thinking about like, oh, this arrangement is really nice for field trips in this way. And yeah. <laughs> I wonder why they put this in for the front of the exhibition, with, you know, if that it's so we're, we're always looking at things through a much different lens. Um, so I don't know if it's a connoisseur because it probably is annoying to the average person the things that <laughs> would comment on yeah. and notice. Um, but it definitely changes the way you look at things. Yeah. And, um, filled with tons of crazy weird facts that either make you the most popular or the most unpopular person at a party. I bet they could be useful for trivia night. Do you do that? <laughs> I do sometimes. Yeah. I, they are not bad for trivia. Oh, I always feel just that I. Trivia night is probably one of the most humbling things ever. I I always was the person where it's like, let's play Trivial Pursuit. And I'm like, no, please, I don't want, I don't want people to know how much I don't know about basic history that I probably should have learned, but it I didn't retain it because it was just delivered in the classroom and I didn't go and have some other experience that made it stick in my mind, you know? Oh yeah, completely. I feel like people ask me questions about things. And they're either super into the answer or they are very regretful of asking that question, like if they ask me a question or something. So Trivia Night's a much better place, but it's also, I know nothing about pop culture. So it's humbling and embarrassing when they get to the pop culture questions for me. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I'm a little out of the loop with the pop culture. Um, I, I have, I'm one of those people that's like very specific topics. I probably should get out to museums more often, but <laughs> it's definitely when you're in when you're in a bigger city that has really good museums. Not that we don't have good museums in Bloomington, but you know the Field Museum is huge, and I right. mean, there's so many different um, options when you go to a bigger city. With sometimes you have to make multiple trips where you can't even you can absorb maybe one floor in a day, and then you have to have you have to have the season pass. I think. I mean, I still see, I've worked here eight years and I still see things that I didn't see before when I walk around the museum, but I also end up in meetings so often that we'll have a new exhibit. It's open for months before I like make it to go see. I do see everything eventually, but it takes me a long time sometimes to see some of the exhibits. Well, that's gotta be hard too. If you, if they have all the exhibits that are changing. 
Yeah. Usually I have like six to eight months to get up there. Sometimes it, it does take until like towards the end of like, I'll, I'll usually do a quick walkthrough when they open and then I will take my time and actually go through and read. And that's usually right before it's leaving. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't take my time to go through this one yet. I need to get up there. Yeah. Oh, well that is, I, I just think that, you know, with, I, I hope that people when they come to the museum aren't sitting on their phones the whole time and just ignoring the things that are around them. I hope that people are coming and being present and using that as an opportunity to get information from somewhere else, or like you said, hold the skull in your hands or feel the fur on whatever, whatever the exhibits are that they're doing. So, yeah, you know, we have a lot of conversations about technology and how its relationship is with museums. And I think you can't ignore it completely because it is what draws kids particularly, but it's what draws people in. But there is something special about seeing the real thing. Like if you come to the Field Museum, what you're looking at doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Like the world's treasures that exist, particularly in a natural history museum, that's the only place you can see that thing because it's it's so precious and it's so um, valuable to understanding our natural world to the history of the world and the human story that there's something really unique about seeing the real thing at a museum. But I think what the most successful way that I've seen technology in museums is when technology is used to enhance that experience. And so the dinosaur is probably one of the most seen things that people see when they come to the museum. And what's so great is they have a light show on Sue where they use technology to light up bones and talk about how technology is used to understand what life was like when Sue was alive, how Sue died. And so there's ways to bring the two worlds together, but finding those ways, having QR codes for people to scan their phone so that what they are looking at when they're looking at their phone is helping them better understand what's around them. You know, it's finding those tricks to get people to be more aware of what they're looking at and how special that is. Yeah. I like that QR code thing because that's, I mean, that way you're, you have your phone, you're using it for something that's helping you engage with what's in front of you. I think Mm -hmm. that is a good, that's a good way to just utilize something, but also help people engage with, with the exhibit. And because a lot of times don't they have where you can sign up for something or some kind of app or, or whatever it is, and it'll tell you about the exhibit or instead of reading, because I know some of them have the written description on the exhibit, but then there's something that you can look at electronically and just sort of do a tour around the room. Yeah, I think that's becoming increasingly popular. QR codes are funny because I don't think anyone knew how to use them before the pandemic. And now they're like one of the most commonly used technology features. Uh, But it's something we talk about a lot is adding more of those QR codes for people that want to also scan something and save it and read it later. And mm-hmm. so realizing that all of the label copy is maybe a lot for somebody to read, especially yeah. in the digital rail where they're scanning from screen to screen. So I think that there's real opportunity in allowing people to scan those QR codes, understand what's around them, but then be able to look back at it when they get home. Yeah. Yeah. That is kind of a nice way to, take advantage of something that maybe does enhance it and is something you couldn't do if you're you didn't have access to that functionality so right right yeah well 
This is a good place to wrap up. So where can people go to find out more about the Field Museum, the programs, and just some of the different options or or where to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. That's about it for social media for me. But um, the Field Museum, uh, www.fieldmuseum.org is our main site. If you search learning, uh, you can find um, things about our department, but also uh, searching summer camps, search uh, dozing with the dinos or sleepovers, if those are things of interest, uh, Granger Science Hub to see the content in their switches. And so through that field site, uh, you you can scroll to those things, but putting things in the search bar might help uh, find some of those topics more quickly. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all of the places that you can learn about the field museum programs, as well as how to connect with Amy. And then finally, be sure to check out the B Podcast Network for educators and aspiring leaders if you're looking for shows to inspire you to level up in your career or more effectively serve students, we've got you covered. Learn more about the B Podcast Network at bpodcastnetwork.com and Remember that there is one show that will give you quick episodes every day to help you get your day started on the right foot, designed specifically for educators. It's called Morning Motivation for Educators, and I am a contributor to that show. So to learn more about the Morning Motivation for Educators podcast, you're going to want to go to morningmotivationedu.com. If you have a suggestion for a guest, a topic, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, please email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anyone you think needs this information. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. 
If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.